Welcome to Near East PolicyCast. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. It's easy to think of terrorism as a problem to be solved by fighting terrorists, arresting them before they attack, catching or killing them and their accomplices after they strike. But veteran counterterrorism analyst Matthew Levitt says that preventing individuals from becoming terrorists in the first place is just as important, and it can be done. It's called CVE, or Countering Violent Extremism. CVE is not soft, whereas counterterrorism is strong. In fact, CVE is a necessary complement to counterterrorism. If you are always doing counterterrorism, then, then in a sense you failed. You haven't, you haven't stopped things before they got to a very dangerous place. In a new report, Matt Levitt and a bipartisan team of scholars and policymakers share an ambitious agenda for the new American administration to improve and expand our efforts to prevent and counter violent extremism. We'll talk to Matt about the report, why preventing and countering violent extremism is a vital part of our defense against terrorism, and what specific steps government officials, community leaders, and individual citizens can take. After this. This is Kate Bauer, Senior Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Washington Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies to secure them. Find all of our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. Matthew Levitt is the Fromer Wexler Fellow and Director of the Washington Institute's Stein Program on Counterterrorism and Intelligence. A veteran counterterrorism analyst and policy practitioner, he has served in the FBI, the Treasury Department, and the Department of State. Most recently, Matt convened a bipartisan task force to study options for protecting the United States from violent extremism. Their report, Defeating Ideologically Inspired Violent Extremism, represents a comprehensive bipartisan strategy for preventing and countering violent extremism. You can find it online at WashingtonInstitute.org slash PCVE. Matt, thanks for joining us today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let's start with defining some key terms. A decade of effort, work where you've been in the forefront, has led to the widespread acceptance of CVE, Countering Violent Extremism, as a framework for thinking about the problems of and the solutions to violent radicalism. Yet your task force report begins by adding a P for prevention to PCVE. Why is that important? So as we looked at the waterfront of activities that goes into countering violent extremism, what we found is that people were mixing up uh, or mixing together all kinds of different activities, some that were CVE specific, some that were CVE relevant. And one way to think through that distinction And the distinction, therefore, about who's responsible for what, what pots of money things should come out of, is to break out those activities that are really about preventing violent extremism in its earliest sense, trying to reduce the conditions in which extremism can flourish, and then dealing later with countering violent extremism if and when your prevention efforts are not fully successful and uh, off-ramping or intervening when people are down the radicalization uh, path. So we think of preventing violent extremism as encompassing those kinds of proactive efforts that build community resilience to violent extremism. It's it's about good governance, and it works from the bottom up. It's about community uh, at the community level, whereas countering violent extremism is at the individual level. And so it's addressing at the preventing level local drivers of extremism, educating community members and leaders on the signs of radicalization, building networks to address radicalization should it manifest itself. And again, most importantly, it focuses on the community at large, whereas countering violent extremism involves 
proactive and, and non-kinetic measures to counter extremist narratives and ideologies that would be intended to radicalize individuals to violent extremism and intervention to prevent the radicalization of individuals who are already on the path to radicalization. And this focuses on the individual level. Can, can you give an example of a specific government program or policy that would represent uh, an example of prevention versus an example of countering violent extremism? So if you think about this as a public health style model, public health tends to think about things in primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention, and that would apply here too. The primary and secondary prevention would be the PVE, the preventing violent extremism elements that we're talking about. And that's in a, in a public health sense, you know, trying to do things to make it so that uh, disease or sickness uh, will have a harder time sticking in a community. Think of putting sanitizer at airports and stuff like that. And we can do things like that too, whether it's in the high schools, more generally in community. And at that level, we're talking about of geographic focus. We're not focusing on any particular ism, whether it's Islamism or gangs or anything else. Uh, here in Montgomery County, Maryland, right outside Washington, D.C., we have the BRAVE model, Building Resilience Against Violent Extremism. They work across all three of these primary, secondary, and tertiary levels. They're working in schools, for example, to uh, uh, make sure that there are programs in place, whether it's after-school programs uh, run through the county, etc., to make sure that uh, there's places for people to go so that they wouldn't feel drawn to say to gangs or other things. They have people in place, teachers and peers and educating parents and librarians as to what to look for, for people who might be showing signs of distress uh, and might be amenable to some type of recruitment or radicalization. That's kind of the secondary level. And then when they see someone who's going down this path, they're able to intervene with sometimes religious leaders, sometimes community leaders, depending on the type of issue, the type of ism that's, that's, uh, that they're being drawn to, to intervene. And so you can have actions across this entire spectrum at the earliest, you know, making sure that an at-risk community has the services available to it, that people know how to access those services, that immigrant communities know how to access government services, feel comfortable reaching out to government, especially people who come from parts of the world where a good day is a day with no interaction with government, let alone law enforcement. Uh, those are kind of the most basic, most preventative, early, moving the needle as early in the process as possible to try and inculcate communities to build resilience uh, against the types of opportunities that create a cognitive opening for radical ideas. And then as you move down that spectrum, intervening when you see someone slipping down uh, that slippery slope towards extremism, whether it's by countering the narrative or uh, intervening to see whatever it is that's going on in their lives. And it's important there to realize that there are both push and pull factors in almost every circumstance, some types of grievance or problem in a person's life, mental health, or many other types of issues, and then, of course, the draw of ideology, of belonging, of community, of a calling greater than oneself, and both of those have to be addressed. The report uh, speaks broadly about violent extremism and policies and programs designed to counter uh, extremism generally, and the, the the movement from radicalism to violence on an individual level on of, of, of any kind. What's the importance of that broad approach 
rather than simply focusing on radical Islamist violence? So there are two parts to that question. One is why not focus just on Islamist extremism as opposed to the other types of ideologies that might drive people to violence? And the second is the distinction between focusing on specifically violent extremism and extremism more broadly. Both of those are really important ideas that we grappled with in our uh, study group. It was a bipartisan study group, so there was some pretty good debate. And we had the advantage of having um, almost a year of off-the-record, really Chatham House rule roundtables. Those actually continue. And then getting briefings just for our group from people who are practitioners in communities at local government, state government, federal government, intelligence analysts, really across the the broad spectrum. And here's what we came out with on those two issues. Law enforcement cannot be thought police. Law enforcement can legally only get involved when they believe that there is a crime that either has been committed or is in the process of potentially being committed. So much so that law enforcement will investigate some individuals and run down those cases and sometimes determine that there's no violation of the law. There's some disquieting behavior, some disturbing behavior, but nothing illegal, and they have to shut down the case. And for such cases, including Omar Mateen in Orlando and Ahmed Rahimi in Chelsea, New York, and in New Jersey, in Garland, Texas, in in Boston, in the Boston Marathon bombings, law enforcement investigated those individuals, but then closed down the cases, and, and we know what happened in those cases, horrible acts of violence. There was no one in those cases for the Bureau, the FBI, or local or state law enforcement to hand those cases off to outside of the law enforcement area from the public health, the mental health, the clinical social workers side of government so that they could continue working with these people. And that's a huge flaw. So on the one hand, that's, you know, the thought police, that's not a place for law enforcement. They need to focus on violent extremism. And there needs to be someone to hand these people off to if there's still other disquieting behaviors. On the flip side, while we certainly should not be criminalizing radical ideas, we should absolutely be contesting them. Think about smoking. Smoking is perfectly legal in this country with some caveats. There are some places where you can't do it. But generally, smoking is legal. But federal, state, and local governments all spend a lot of money, uh, targeted campaigns to teach you, the smoker, the dangers of smoking and try and convince you to quit, to teach the guy next to you the dangers of secondhand smoke, and to teach the larger population the dangers not only of secondhand smoke but of the financial bottom line in terms of your tax dollar and the cost, financial cost to society. So we contest something that is not good for you or the people around you or society at all, but we don't criminalize it. We should definitely be doing that with ideas too. And on the issue of targeting all violent ideologies, look, Islamist extremism has posed a very clear danger and a different type of threat in the past years, and it absolutely must be contested. But we also have seen a rise in far-right extremism, even cases uh, in the past few months of far-left extremism. We should be dealing with all dangerous and violent ideologies that pose uh, public safety uh, risks to society. And more than that, as we look at some of the models that have been created in Europe, and we need to look at those models because we haven't 
experimented with very many models here in the U.S. There's much we can learn for others, much that they've done that won't be applicable to us, but much that will be. One of the things the Europeans have found is that while there's much that does not translate from countering neo-Nazis or far-right anti-government groups or far-left groups, there's a lot that does translate. And if you think back to those primary, secondary, tertiary levels of intervention, of prevention, prevention at that primary level, as I said, is geographic. Everything you would do there to deal with Islamist extremism is the same things you would do to deal with MS-13 gangs, far right, far left, and everything in between. The BRAVE model in Montgomery County that I mentioned earlier operates in a variety of schools. And some of those schools, because they have this primary, secondary, and tertiary model, they've been there as a net, and they've been able to catch and intervene and deal with, sometimes in the very same school, people drawn to gangs like MS-13, people drawn to Islamist ideologies like the Islamic State or Al-Qaeda. Why wouldn't you use the same tools for multiple problems? The reason, in other words, to deal with all these ideologies is not an ideological decision. It's a programmatic one. We are facing challenges that, that challenge security uh, from a variety of, of fronts, even if some are more present than others. Uh, why not deal with all of them? And finally, the last thing is if you look at the ADL studies and other recent studies that have come out, by many measures, there, there's a great many more plots and sometimes a great many more uh, injuries and deaths recently from far-right groups in particular than Islamist groups. In part, that's because of our success in countering Islamist groups. But again, another point to uh, suggest that we should be dealing with all of these things, given that we're working on a toolkit that can address multiple types of extremism. It seems like one thing that, that may be uh, in common between people who are uh, vulnerable to or already on the spectrum of radicalization between uh, people in some uh, Muslim communities, as well as people in some kind of far right communities uh, domestically is... The idea that a good day is a day when you haven't had an interaction with the local uh, or state or federal law enforcement agent uh, closest to you. In your report, I'm going to quote, uh, it says, uh, it is important that PCV efforts maintain connective tissue to law enforcement partners, whether local, state or federal, but are not wholly securitized. That seems like it's a recommendation with a lot of tension to it. Uh, maintaining connection to law enforcement without being purely a, uh, uh, you know, go straight to jail, do not pass, go kind of interaction. How do local, state, and federal uh, authorities and programs achieve that? So it's really important to do this, and achieving it is no simple task. It's important for communities to feel that there is someone other than law enforcement they can go to if they feel that their neighbor or classmate or child is drawn to extremism, so that they don't feel that they're necessarily uh, automatically sending their child or neighbor or peer you know, to jail. But when they do that, these networks that will be operating in communities, they need to have connective tissue to law enforcement so that they can inform law enforcement if there uh, is, is a need to. If a therapist is working with someone and that therapist isn't that a person isn't responding to therapy and is getting worse and presents an imminent danger, there is a legal standard of of duty to warn. And so you need to have that connective tissue of duty to warn. From the flip side, if you want 
the FBI or others to be able to say, look, we've come across this person, um, we've run this case to ground, but there seems to be some benefit they would have from some type of ongoing relationship. Or even if you want the FBI to be able to say, listen, I'm investigating somebody. I'm not going to ask your permission to continue investigating that somebody. That's a responsibility I have to society. But meanwhile, it would probably be beneficial to that person and maybe even to my overall investigation. If you started doing some intervention, maybe this person could be off-ramped before it gets dangerous. If you want the FBI to do that, it has to have a faith and trust in the local partners that it's developing to. This trust has to cut both ways. There is a lot of concern within communities among Muslim American communities in particular, but not only, that CVE programs have become a cover for spying. They have not. But the fact is that because some of the uh, ways the FBI maintains relationships with local groups, the FBI tends to operate uh, in a clandestine fashion. They don't go around telling people, I'm investigating this guy, I'm investigating that guy. The FBI is uncomfortable with doing this more publicly. That creates tension for some. And so we think there should be more transparency. We think that the question is not renaming CVE. Uh, we had, you know, we raised the question, is the term CVE too toxic? It's a term that's not used outside the Washington, D.C. Beltway. Almost all programs around the country use other terms, again, like building resiliency against violent extremism. Uh, but we decided that determinant isn't the issue. It's, it's finding ways to create better trust and uh, changing things enough so that people can have enough transparency to understand what is and what is not happening. Uh, this is not a cover for spying, and we need to be able to convince people of that. We've talked for a long time over the past few years dealing with terrorism, dealing with al-Qaeda and then the Islamic State, about the need to create a whole-of-government uh, approach using all elements of national power. That applies here, too. We need this to be not wholly securitized in that we need this to be from a federal level, not just the law enforcement agencies, Department of Justice, FBI, Homeland Security, but we also need Health and Human Services, Department of Education, and other service-oriented parts of government to get involved. They've been wary of doing that uh, in part because they're wary of their activities then being seen as being securitized. They're worried that, that their constituents might think that they are involved in some type of spying thing, and they haven't really stepped up. Among our structural recommendations are ways to restructure the newly created Countering Violent Extremism Task Force, which is headquartered at DHS and has a deputy from the Department of Justice, but doesn't have uh, HHS or education as part of the stakeholder leadership of the task force. They're on the task force, but they're not particularly involved, and we think they should be made part of the leadership to get them uh, more involved. Uh, and that is something that needs to happen. I think once it happens, we'll be able to convince communities that this really is something that is a whole-of-government uh, effort. And when we build local partners that federal HHS and state HHS um, agencies can work with, networks of mental health experts and clinical social workers and teachers, etc., uh, what we will create and what we think in this report is the most important thing to create is a whole-of-society approach, not just a whole-of-government approach. At the end of the day, federal government has a very big role to play, especially in funding and setting standards of excellence and, 
and uh, communicating and networking uh, local and state actors together and with others abroad. But at the end of the day, the people best positioned to identify extremism when it happens in the first instance and the people best able to deal with it are people local in communities. The more local we can make this, the more effective it will be. And it has to be across a broad swath of communities, again, at its most basic, at its most primary prevention level, a geographic area, not just, for example, Muslim communities. First of all, Muslim communities in the plural, there are many and they're not all the same. Second, not just them because we're dealing with multiple types of extremist ideologies. And third, even if you were focused in a particular instance on trying to preventively um, inculcate communities against Islamist extremism, many of the people who've been radicalized to Islamist extremism have been converts, and many of them are not part of mainstream Muslim communities. And so if you only try and address this with uh, Muslim communities, you will by definition miss some of the Islamist extremists that we're trying to, to, um, to reach out and touch. Aside from convening this task force and uh, also for, for years now, hosting a uh, lecture series on uh, counterterrorism that has brought federal, international, as well as state and local officials to Washington to speak uh, to high-level audiences about their efforts, you've also served in government uh, across kind of the spectrum in law enforcement, uh, at Treasury, at state. So I... I'd like to call on your expertise and, and ask you for some specific examples of existing programs that, that you've seen, that you're aware of, that you've uh, worked with, that you think uh, are working and that the new administration here in Washington should preserve and build on. Well, for starters, after we should, we should note, by the way, that as much as we're calling for these efforts to be um, not securitized, uh, the fact is the only reason we're really having this conversation is because the federal government and law enforcement at the federal level got involved after the Boston Marathon bombings, and that was the wake-up call. It's not like the public side of government was very active in the space at all. Um, the only reason we got involved in this space is because of the security issues. Having said that, the best way to move forward is to rebalance that security and service uh, spectrum of activities. After the Boston Marathon bombings, the federal government reached out to three communities around the country uh, in Boston, Minneapolis, and Los Angeles, with three very different types of radicalization phenomena happening in each of those cities and created what they called pilot programs. And there are different um, styles of pilot programs in each of those cities. One of the most interesting is in Minneapolis, where the U.S. attorney uh, leveraged personal relationships to secure um, not only state funding from the state legislature, but private sector funding uh, for a really wide array of CVE activities across the Minneapolis-St. Paul area and beyond. That funding is not going from the private sector to government. They created an umbrella NGO, uh, which then when the federal DHS created CVE grants, uh, they were able to apply for federal grants as well. And they have a very broad array of programs that are being run mostly by NGOs and that they provide assistance and seed money to operating communities, the Somali-American community in particular, but not only. In Los Angeles, you have a partnership between uh, LAPD, uh, the Los Angeles Police Department, and the LA Mayor's Office. So it's happening. It's a different type of model. 
but it's no less effective there. Uh, and finally, in Massachusetts, you have the U.S. Attorney's Office, but the U.S. Attorney's Office is partnering with state HHS and other state-level um, government structures uh, to uh, to work with uh, different types of organizations uh, operating on the ground in communities and with, with local government. So there's lots of different ways to structure this. There are many groups already out there that are doing lots of different things, groups of formers, people who were formerly people who had joined or thought about joining terrorist groups and dropped out and have been uh, disengaged from terrorism, people who are former neo-Nazis, groups like, like Life After Hate and the neo-Nazi context, Kajug, a Somali-American group in uh, Minneapolis. There's a long, long list of groups. What we found more interesting as we were looking around is the existing federal, state, and other national umbrella organizations that aren't fully being utilized. You know, mayors play a huge role here. Governors could play a huge role here. And there is the Mayor's Association, a conference. There is a, a Governor's Association. Uh, there are national associations for local police departments, for sheriff's departments. There is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health uh, Agency, which is a federal government entity, which is doing phenomenal work locally and with states. We found that Health and Human Services has a wide array of violence prevention public health type of programs that are very, very relevant to this space. And that wouldn't mean that we're saying that this is not a law enforcement or security problem. It's just that we're recognizing that Health and Human Services has a footprint and has relevant programming and funding in the public health, public safety, and violence prevention space. And we need to be thinking about preventing and countering violent extremism as something that operates in a space that's covered by a large Venn diagram. And those two overlapping circles are, are law enforcement and, and service parts of government. And each have responsibility, not just applicability, but responsibility to do what they can with the authorities they have in that overlapping uh, space uh, where those two circles uh, intersect. And that's not yet being done as well as it could be. And so we make a variety of structural recommendations, some very wonky in the weeds, uh, about how to restructure things. We make some very um, technical recommendations, again, some wonky. This, for example, mental health professionals' duty to warn, which is something that law enforcement has to have confidence in to be able to feel that they can kind of hand off a case to them, duty to warn is not standardized across the country. That, that doesn't work. On the flip side, from the perspective of a clinical social worker or, or a mental health worker, um, they're very concerned about, um, to be blunt, you know, insurance uh, questions. Let's say I'm working with someone in a community and an FBI hands off a case to me and I'm working with someone and I do phenomenal work and this person is uh, disengaged, maybe even de-radicalized, de and is an upstanding and productive member of society for, let's say, several years. And then another international crisis like Syria happens or some horrible you know, crisis happens in this individual's life or more likely some combination thereof, and the person dips back into uh, violent extremism, which is possible. Am I then somehow uh, liable if God forbid that person uh, injures or kills someone later on. You know what what type of liability do I have? Or, for example, 
If, uh, if, if I'm going to intervene with someone who, for example, was in contact with Islamic State operatives abroad and was thinking of traveling abroad but never did, and we think that this person might be a good target for an intervention, maybe even the FBI thinks this person would be a good target for intervention, do I risk, maybe if this goes sour, or maybe if even if it doesn't, do I risk potentially being charged with some type of material support charge? Because as of right now, the material support statute, which is our most prominent, our only real counterterrorism charge, uh, applies to people who knowingly help members of terrorist organizations. So we, there are some really wonky definitional things that we need to do to make it possible for people to do the things locally that that they they can and should do. If we rise up a little bit from the, uh, as you say, the wonky weeds of policy and take more of a 30,000-foot view, what are some key things that you want uh, listeners outside of Washington, people in American communities, uh, whether they're uh, in law enforcement, whether they're community leaders, uh, or just voting citizens, what are some things you want them to take away from this report as they look forward uh, to what can be done by their national government, by their state government, and by local government to improve our ability to prevent and counter violent extremism. You know, I travel around the country a lot, and I'm often asked after I speak, well, what can we do? People, people want to be empowered to do something. And there are lots of ways to get involved here. The most effective types of networks in local communities, for example, will be volunteer networks. People who have uh, relevant expertise and will volunteer their time to be available in the event that there is a need for a prevention or an intervention activity. So clinical social workers, teachers, um, mental health professionals, uh, religious leaders, community leaders, etc. Instead of having full-time kind of intervention teams, which probably is not cost-effective, it makes a lot of sense for local government, for state government, with federal government help to build networks of volunteers who can step in as uh, as needed. We also talk about the idea, um, if you have small communities around the country that can't or don't uh, create these types of networks, you could have hubs around the country, say in Chicago or Dallas or large cities around the country where, you know, Local teams could be deployed from there to communities in that geographic area in the event of a crisis to help intervene with the particular crisis at hand and to build up local capacity over a couple of weeks to have a local volunteer network. You could even have a fly team out of the Washington area uh, as necessary. The report happens to come out at a really opportune time. All new administrations uh, run policy reviews of major policies. And that is the case with the Trump administration as well. And it certainly is the case with uh, the Trump administration and its review of CVE policy. There are some within the Trump administration who quite clearly think that CVE is weak, is soft, is unnecessary. And instead, we should not be countering violent extremism, but just countering terrorism. And what we try and explain in this report is that CVE is not counterterrorism, but it's a necessary complement to counterterrorism, that the people who are most desperate for it are law enforcement. FBI talks about somewhere between 900 and 1,000 Islamic State-related cases across the country in all 50 states. They are literally drinking from a water hose. It's overwhelming. They need partners, and they need people to intervene as early as possible to shrink the potential pool of recruits who can be radicalized in the coming months and years. 
Um, so this is really important, and it's important not just in the early prevention stage. It's important not just in the uh, countering stage where you're trying to get someone to veer off the path to radicalization. It's even important at the tail end of the process in terms of rehabilitation and reintegration. Most people think of that as a European problem because the Europeans have some 6,000 people who have gone to fight in Syria and Iraq and many are returning. We thankfully don't have that problem. We've had only maybe about 300 people who have gone or even tried to go to Syria and Iraq and we have a very good handle on those people and as they try to return. But we have a different problem. Next month, the very first person who was tried and convicted and has served her sentence, a woman, for a charge related to Islamic State activity is going to be released from prison after having completed her sentence. Over the next few years, we're going to have somewhere around 900 individuals who have been incarcerated for terrorism or terrorism-related offenses who will complete their sentences. As of now, we do not have CVE or counter-radicalization programs in our prisons, nor do we have any post-release programs that are specific to countering violent extremism beyond the basic parole system. And so we need to be thinking about that right now. And so I would encourage people to be supportive of these types of programs, both to their uh, uh, members of Congress, to create some support for this on the Hill. As part of our rollout of this, we've been meeting with um, staff and with members, uh, and there is interest in this. That has to be both the law enforcement-related committees like Homeland Security, but also those that oversee Department of Education and Health and Human Services. Locally, there's a huge place for this in state and local government, and I would encourage people to think of this as something that should be happening in their local communities, their local government, uh, and to be looking for organizations that are operating in your local community that you can support that are practitioners in this space. At the end of the day, you know, risk management, violence prevention, these are things that are important for us as a society. This is how good governance is done, community policing is done. We need more programs, and we need those programs to be measured and evaluated so that we can see what works and what doesn't. But I think we need a little bit more of a spirit of experimentation. It's not something we tend to have political comfort for in this country. Members of Congress tend to want evidence that a program is going to work before they fund it. Uh, I think they're going to need to start funding some programs that show promise of working, insist as part of the funding that there be real-time evaluation and feedback loop to address any gaps. But we're going to need to practice a little bit, as the Europeans have done, uh, so that we can have programs. Otherwise, it's a little bit of a chicken and an egg. I can't fund you because you don't have a proven program. You don't have a proven program because you wouldn't provide any seed funding to get a program off the ground. It's really important to appreciate that CVE is not soft, whereas counterterrorism is strong. In fact, CVE is a necessary complement to counterterrorism. If you are always doing counterterrorism, then, then in a sense, you failed. You haven't you haven't stopped things before they got to a very dangerous place. We have a very powerful, resilient society. We have the capability to intervene when people have problems of all different kinds, including the kind that create the cognitive opening for dangerous, radical, and even violent uh, ideologies, extremism, and actions. We should be deploying that. We should not be waiting until something is a hard counterterrorism problem. And deciding to do that is not soft. At the end of the day, 
to deal with the very real and very different terrorism problem of homegrown violent extremisms, we need countering violent extremism programs to nip them in the bud as early as possible. The types of counterterrorism programs we put in place to try and stop the 9-11 are very, the next 9-11 are very, very important, but they won't stop the next homegrown violent extremists who will not necessarily be on our radar uh, with our traditional counterterrorism tools. So you talk to FBI, they think that the, one of the primary threats we face is from homegrown violent extremism. If that's the case, listen to the FBI when they say they need help from communities in terms of countering violent extremism programs. And let's put those in place. Matthew Levitt is the Fromer Wexler Fellow and Director of the Washington Institute Stein Program on Counterterrorism and Intelligence. Matt convened a bipartisan task force to study options for protecting the United States from violent extremism. Their report, Defeating Ideologically Inspired Violent Extremism, presents a comprehensive bipartisan strategy for preventing and countering violent extremism. You can find it online at washingtoninstitute.org slash P-C-V-E. Matt, thank you for speaking with us today. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers.